If you're a guest with us, I want to welcome you. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Hebrews chapter 13. We are finishing a series that we've been in. Um, and if you're new to our church, uh, just one of the patterns that we kind of follow is we grab books of the Bible and we preach through them. And so um, we're going to take a little bit of a breather after Hebrews, and we're going to be preaching through Colossians chapter 1 for Christmas, leading up to Christmas. And then in January, we launch a, a pretty extended study through the Gospel of Mark. If you're someone like likes to read ahead and uh, check things out, we're going to begin the Gospel of Mark in January. Now, speaking of January, back in January of 2006, one of the greatest college football games that has ever been played took place in Pasadena, California in the Rose Bowl. And some of you will remember this. The Texas Longhorns were heavy underdogs going up against what some argue is the greatest college football team ever assembled in the USC Trojans. And uh, you may argue against that, but they were really good. They were a juggernaut. As a matter of fact, Texas were uh, scouted to be such underdogs in this game that their head coach, Mac Brown, did not even prepare a victory speech because he thought, what, you know, just, we cannot overcome these odds. This is going to be an incredibly difficult game. But if you... Uh, remember, many of you watched Vince Young uh, bring the Longhorns back. They were down 12 points in the fourth quarter. And on fourth and five, Vince Young did this. Grabs the ball and runs 15 yards into the corner of the end zone to win the national championship and upset the juggernaut that is USC, capping one of the greatest games ever played. Uh, just an incredible moment in kind of sports history. But my favorite part of the whole thing was the unprepared victory speech. See, Mac Brown's a guy I respect a lot. I think he's a great coach, and he gathered up all of his players after this incredible game with all the pressure, all the spotlight, the whole world's watching, and they did uh, the thing that nobody thought that they could do. He gathers them up, and with tears in his eyes, he's looking at some of these players who he knew he'd not see again. Some of them were going to go off to the NFL. Others were graduating, and he gave them what I think is one of the greatest speeches ever, and he said these words. I don't want today, this is after the game, to be the best thing that's ever happened to you. When you're 54 years old, I don't want you to say winning a football game was the best thing that ever happened in my life. He went on to say, you need to live a much more intentional life. You need to be present with your family. You need to cultivate deep friendships and relationships because today cannot be the capstone of your young life. See, when I get to Hebrews 13, that's what comes to my mind that speech. Because I feel as though when we get to Hebrews chapter 13, the end of this incredible book, the, the author of Hebrews is gathering up people that he loves and cares about, and he's saying, hey, you need to live a pretty intentional life. And a very, very intentional life. So here's the, the difficult part of Hebrews 13, is that it's really practical. And so it's going to get into like a lot of application immediately. You're going to be able to apply things right away. Boom, 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 boom. You're going to be able to, like, man, I can do, we can live that way. We can... And so uh, you have to pay attention in order to be intentional and get the true meaning of the text, even though it's very, very practical. I had a friend who got to preach at a real small country church uh, while he was in seminary. He arrives to this church, and he's going to preach on loving your enemies. That was kind of the theme of the morning. And, and so this small church, he asks this question, do any of you find it very difficult to love your enemies and forgive people that have hurt you? And everybody raises their hand except this sweet older lady. That caught, caught him off guard. So he says, ma'am, uh, do you not find it difficult to love your enemies? She responded, I don't have any enemies. <laughs> he said, well, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? 
She said, I'm 98 years old. And immediately he thought, man, this is a perfect time to get some really deep wisdom, practical advice for everybody else in the church. And so he looks at her and he says, how is it that a person can live 98 years in this life and have not a single enemy in the entire world? She looked at him and said, well, I outlived all those old hags. <laughs> very practical. <laughs> Hebrews 13 is very, very practical. But I want to set us up the right way. Because like most practical teaching in the Bible, it has to start with a proper view of God. Otherwise, it becomes a to-do list that we try to accomplish to feel better about ourselves. Like the book of Proverbs, a lot of people, many of you maybe, you like to grab a proverb and memorize it and apply it to your life. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you've read through Proverbs, you know in Proverbs 1 it starts with the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. But it's no coincidence that that proverb is also the beginning of the book of Proverbs. So before you can apply any of the other Proverbs, you have to get that one right. You have to understand, in order for me to live a practical life that is honoring to God, I have to be able to see God the way that God intends me to see Him. Otherwise, it's just a religious to-do list. And so today, we're actually going to start in Hebrews chapter 12, the last two verses of chapter 12. In the original writing of this letter, there was no cha chapter and verse divisions. We added that later. So this would be one flowing letter. So the last two verses in chapter 12 really give us the context to understand chapter 13. And he starts this way. He says, therefore, and that therefore is communicating to us because of everything we've already studied in this series. So if you missed it, I encourage you to get online and get caught up. But the whole series is making this, this loud point. It's like it's screaming to us. No matter what you experience, what you've been through, what circumstance you find yourself in, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything you have to go up against. Christ is better. That's the point he makes. And if you're in Christ, you have that incredible promise. He says, because of that, let's be grateful. Because we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. No matter what the world throws its way, this kingdom will not be shaken. It will not move because of what Jesus has done. And because of that truth, he says, then let us offer to God acceptable worship. What he's saying there is literally let us give every single part of our lives to God because we're grateful for what he's done for us in Christ. And so we're going to respond in, in seeing God properly as the one who's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Then he says, when you offer God acceptable worship with your life, the posture of your life, the posture that your life takes, naturally, is reverence and awe. I, am, I stand in reverence and awe of the God who did what I could not do on my own. When I worked so hard and tried to achieve so much, he did for me what I could not do for myself. And when I see that properly, I respond accordingly. He says, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the Christian life. The Christian life is always a response to something. Every time. It's always a response to something. You worship something when you're amazed by it. Right? It almost overwhelms you. It draws you in. It's, it's as if in those moments when you see clearly, your response is very natural. Let me give you a really lame example. Friday night, Western Boone wins a state championship. And what do you do? Good job, boys. Let's go home. Like, no, everybody was cheering. Even, like, people that went to Lebanon were cheering. Like, yes, this is awesome. Like, we didn't make it, but they did, and we can cheer for this. You stand up, and you cheer, and you're excited, and you're happy. You weren't asked to do that. I hope not, at least. That'd be pretty lame if they had to beg you to cheer for them when they won a state title. No, you just do it, because you're responding to something. Well, the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, when you can see God with clarity, 
you're going to respond in a very similar way. In a very deep spiritual sense, your life will be a response to all that he's done when you can see him with clarity. And this is incredibly important. Because the deeper you fall in love with Jesus, the more you understand what the gospel means, the more clearly you will respond to it. But here's my fear with this. Many of us, myself included, oftentimes when we go to church, we sit in a seat, we literally will listen to somebody talk to us, and we're just waiting for them to say something clever and neat, some practical nugget of wisdom that we can take and apply to our lives. And if if I could just get two or three things that I'm supposed to go and do, then I'll go do those things and I'll feel better about myself. And sadly, most preaching has been reduced to giving you two or three life application points that you can take and go and apply to your life and live a better life. See, the church, the point of church, the point of the gathering is not... It's not for us to feel better about ourselves or find that inner person or achieve all of your potential. That's not the point. The point is God's holiness. It's to see God for who He is. And in doing so, take a posture of reverence and awe. It should not be difficult to worship when you can see clearly the one that you're called to worship. But it is hard. One of the stories in the Bible that illustrates this the best is also one of the most difficult texts in all the Bible. It's found in Leviticus chapter 10. See, at this point in their history, the Israelites, the Hebrews, they're on this journey. God had sent Moses to deliver them from Egypt. Remember this? 400 years of captivity, they get delivered. And God says, hey, I want you to go to the promised land. And they're in the wilderness. They have to travel across this really difficult terrain. And they're traveling across this terrain. But at this moment, Leviticus 10, it's actually a pretty pleasant season in their life. They built a tabernacle. Moses had met with God on Mount Sinai and he'd been given the instructions for how to make sacrifices. And those sacrifices were told to the people that when he sacrifices for you, you'll be able to experience the presence of God. And so uh, they send Aaron, Moses' brother, and his children aside. They're almost ordaining them into ministry so that they can be the ones to offer these sacrifices. You get to the end of chapter 9, they offer this first sacrifice. And the glory of God, on cue, shows up and consumes this offering. And it's incredible. The people are so joyful, and they're just, yes, this is the greatest thing ever. We're experiencing the presence of God. And then in chapter 10, it just takes a hard turn. Chapter 10, verse 1 says this. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized. So God, unauthorized, meaning it wasn't just not allowed. It was told to them not to do this. They were directly disobeying God before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. He told them, don't do this. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. That's a hard text. It's a hard passage. But it illustrates something really important. A lot of people read that and they think, man, how harsh is that? I mean, come on, is this not just another sign of an arbitrary, angry God? I would say that that first question is probably not the best question to ask. When you study the context, it tells you a little bit. This is one of the best seasons in the life of the Israelites. I mean, God had given them the law. He'd met them in in Egypt and delivered them from captivity. He'd met Moses on Mount Sinai. He had forgiven them for the whole golden calf incident. He'd restored, he'd given them the sacrificial system, and he had just accepted their first sacrifice to give them his presence and fulfill their joy. The right question to ask is, in the midst of all that God was doing for them, in the midst of all that God was showing them, what went wrong with these two guys? What did they miss? They're living their lives going through the motions and they're, missing, they're not seeing God and responding to what they've seen. Scholars will agree that it's a confusing passage to determine what exactly these two guys were doing. Some think that they were introducing pagan practices into uh, the worship of God. 
And God wasn't going to tolerate that. Others think that they were just trying to make a name for themselves and try to be important and get access to something they weren't yet granted access to. Some think because the law told the, the, the priests not to drink that these had, two had been drinking and they were under the influence. Whatever the case, what the text clearly shows us is they did not see their sin properly and they did not see God's holiness properly. And they tried to manifest everything on their own, within their own power. And there were consequences to follow this. What perplexes me about the whole passage in Leviticus is this. They just watched God's first offering be accepted. There was no need to do anything else except sit in the joy of what had been given to them. And they felt like they had to continue to do more. And they continued to try harder and work harder in their own strength, in their own understanding, not seeing God the way He wanted to be seen. And they didn't take it seriously, and they paid the price. It's a difficult passage. And many of us look at that and we're like, no way, there's no way that God could do that and God could also be good. But if you're like me, when I ask questions like that, other things might happen in my life over here, like something wrong will happen or I'll see something politically or something going on in our world, and I'll cry for justice. There needs to be justice in that situation. That, that, that should be taken care of the proper way. And yet I'm over here saying, no, not that though, not that though. Here's what I've learned through our study of Hebrews and really through the study of this passage this past week in Leviticus is this, that in order for God to be good, God must also be just. And he's always going to handle sin in a just manner in order to continue to be a good God. He doesn't play with sin. That's hard for us because we live in a culture that does not gravitate toward authority, toward humility, we gravitate toward our own ideas, our own thoughts, and to humble ourselves before a holy God is a very difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around. But when you do, and you look at what Hebrews has taught us, you realize that I'm actually coming into a place where He's done for me what I couldn't do for myself. If left to my own, I couldn't handle this, but look what He's done for me. And when you can see that, you begin to respond with your life. All of your life, every single element of your life then becomes a response because you're like, God, I can't believe what you've done for me. I was seriously doomed. Look at all that you've done. Not just the forgiveness of your sins, but look at all the different things he's done in your life. I was reflecting on that this Thanksgiving. So I sat around a table, and I got to look at my kids, and I thought, there's no way I'd be, I would be their dad. I'd be married to this great girl if I didn't come to know Jesus and walk with him. See, the blessings, they just come like incredible. You begin to see things through the lens of offering God your life as an act of worship. All of it goes to him. This is a beautiful picture of Christian maturity. We start out obeying God because we're told in the Bible to obey God. And as we grow, we begin to learn, no, it's not just obeying him. It's actually coming to better understand all that he's done for me. Now it's a response. It's not just obeying him. I'm actually responding to him. It's kind of like with my kids. When my 18-month-old Noah goes wandering toward the street and I say, stop, all he needs to do is stop. He doesn't need to know why. He needs to hear my voice and respond to it accordingly. And that's it because he can't see what I see. He doesn't know that little boy plus truck, not good, right? But when he's 18 years old, right, he needs to stop going in the road when oncoming traffic because he understands the depths of what will happen. This is what happens to us. We respond because, like, I don't, I, God created everything. He told me to do this. I'm going to do it. Now, as we mature, we begin to see, look at all that God has done. Look at how incredible he is. Look at all that he's provided for me. Look at how he's changed everything for me. I want to give him everything because he is in control of everything. I just want to respond with my life, giving everything to him. I like the way Abraham Kuyper says it. He says this, there's not a square inch 
and the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. Because he's earned it. Because he deserves it. This includes every single moment of our lives, every single thought, every single encounter, every single thing about you should be a response of saying, God, you can have it all. This is my act of worship. And when you see God that way, when you see living the Christian life as a response to clearly seeing the one who did for you what you couldn't do for yourself, when you see him for all that he is, and you're simply saying, my life is just a response to this. It's not a religious to-do list. That's not an accomplishment I'm trying to achieve. I'm simply responding to how great he is. You recognize church cannot be about you discovering your potential or unleashing the champion that's inside of you. Instead, it's about seeing the holiness of God and responding with reverence and awe. So that being said, that's the starting place. What does it look like when someone sees God with that clarity? Practically speaking, what does that look like? Well, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1 starts this way. Because of that, seeing him with clarity, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So he separates these two concepts. He says, if you're someone who's simply giving your entire life to God as an act of worship, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to continue to love those who are also in Christ. Let brotherly love continue. This is literally in Greek, the word is Philadelphia. Right? The city of what? Brotherly love. This is what he's saying. You have this deep love for one another. You have to care so deeply for those who are in Christ. You meet each other's needs. Remember what Ryan said in Hebrews chapter 10. You love one another. You spur one another on. We respond by caring for those who are also in Christ with us. He says, if you are responding to God and giving Him a life of worship, you're going to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, but it can't only be that. He says, and also show hospitality to strangers, those who are outside of the church family, those who are outside of Christ. You're to display a deep love and affection for them as well, unlike those who are actually from Philadelphia and call themselves Eagles fans. Uh, ironically enough, those are the ones that booed Santa Claus um, when he walked through the stadium, and they boo anyone who's not with so you have to actually love some outside of the family, not just those inside the family. Sorry to Eagles fans, my brother's one. We'll pray for you, all right? So love deeply those in the family. Love deeply and show hospitality towards those who are outside the family. And he says, why? Because sometimes you're going to entertain angels and you won't even know it. Now, we latch onto that. And we have turned hospitality into this Martha Stewart-type dinner party where we have people into our home because they could be angels, and, and we love it. Like, just treat everybody, because it could be an angel. Here's the point. He's making reference to Genesis 18, and he's bringing up Abraham. Abraham lived an entire life of, of hospitality. He was going to treat anybody who came to his home the same way he was going to treat anyone else who came to his home. And there was an incident in, in Genesis 18 where angels showed up, and he treated them just like he treated everybody else, with a deep hospitality, and he was blessed because of it. Here's the point. That's not going to happen all the time. Every time you open your door, it's not an angel, Right? Could be me. <laughs> we don't think it's not going to happen all the time, but you never know when it will. And so you have to live a consistent life of Christian hospitality and care toward all people. And I don't think we're doing a good job of this. Again, this is hard to preach. 
I'm watching a, a conservative Christian political climate that's kind of putting a bad taste in my mouth. I'm watching many people say, take care of the church, but anybody outside, mistreat them. Take care of our own, but mistreat the people outside. Then I watch other people say, well, I'm so angry at the church, forget the church, we should just be caring for everybody outside. I think both are getting it wrong. See, God has called us to be hospitable to all people, the people that we would call our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and anyone else that comes our direction. We're to be hospitable toward them, to love them and care for them, all people. I like the way that Dustin Willis said it in The Simplest Way to Change the World. It's a great book. He says this, uh, hospitality is about us becoming more like God. And here's his words. The Bible begins with God making a home for humanity to dwell with him in. It's a garden. But then the Bible ends with God making a home for believers to dwell with him in again, a city. So hospitality is about us becoming more like him. It's creating an environment where people feel safe. It's creating an environment where people can get closer to Jesus and closer to God. It is a form of us giving God our life as worship is keeping our doors open to those who need to come in and experience him. It's no coincidence that the word hospitable and hospital are so closely related. No coincidence. It's the same concept. When people are hurt, they come to us. This is why Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, to a church in Rome that's really struggling with a climate all around them that's super difficult. This is not an easy thing to be hospitable to people that are mistreating them. And he says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So you take that idea and you couple it with this idea that we're called to be hospitable. You get this idea that the church and every single Christian in the church, every single follower of Jesus, if you say, I'm a follower of Jesus, every single one of us, we're called to be a welcoming place where people can come and they can heal from what sin and destruction all around them have done to them. Every single one of us, every time you open the door to your home, think about this, let it sink in. Or you take someone to coffee or you have a meal with them. Every single time they're with you, when they're done being around you, that other person should be one step closer to Jesus and feel a sense of refreshment and healing. Every single time. Because that's what we do when we offer our lives as worship. Driving home from Thanksgiving, we were in Illinois with family and we're driving home and I just, you know, I got quiet for a little bit and I had some time to just think and I'm going over uh, the notes for the sermon in my mind and I'm thinking to myself and then it just hits me. This is the hardest part of it all that even our enemies should experience our hospitality. Remember, we're worshiping a God who loved and died for those who hated him. And he has called us to be hospitable towards even those who are our enemies. They should experience Jesus, even those who mistreat us, even those who go through difficulty and pain. This is why in verse 3 he mentions those who are in prison. They're in prison for their faith. He's talking about Christians who've been arrested because they were followers of Jesus. And he doesn't say just write a check or write a nice card or pray for them. He actually says, slow down enough in your busy life to meditate to the point where you can picture what it would feel like to be sitting in the cell next to them. That's what he says. And then act. Put yourself in a place where you feel for them to the point where you just can't help but respond because you're responding to the God who put himself in your place too. See, the connections here are pretty incredible. So he says, hey, the Christian life, the one that sees God with clarity, that just sees him as the unshakable, incredible, all-consuming fire God, the Holy One, who is not just a gracious Father, but a holy God, all at the same time, when I see him with clarity, I'm going to respond by being hospitable. But he keeps going. He says it'll also respond this way, verse 4, let marriage 
be held in honor. That's a very strong word. Let marriage, the covenant relationship, be held in honor among all, all Christians. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge. He doesn't say God might. If God's having a bad day, he will. It's, it's God's going to take this extremely seriously. He will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, it kind of seems redundant, sexual, immoral, adultery, but just to cover our basis, adultery means that you're married and you have sex outside of that marriage relationship. Sexually immoral is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get our word pornography. And it is any sexual connection outside of the covenant marriage relationship at all. And God does not take it lightly. And so he says, hey, this life that sees God with crystal clarity, that simply sees him for all that he has done and wants to respond is going to be one that takes care of the poor, takes care of those who are hurting and going through a difficult time, and one who views purity in the right light and, and acts accordingly. Now, some people hear that and they say, man, you Christians, your, your approach to sex, your approach to that topic is just so rigid and difficult. We should be sexually free and you should be able to just explore and learn and do different things. And I would contest and say to you, what if, and I've done this before, but I want you to be able to use this as a tool when talking to people. What if every single person on planet Earth, regardless of their worldview or religious affiliation, obeyed the Christian view of sex completely, that sex is reserved for one man and one woman in a covenant marriage relationship for all time? Would our world be a better place or a worse place? STDs, gone. Rape, gone. Child molesting, gone. Unwanted pregnancies, gone. Abortion, gone. See, maybe God was motivated by a deep love for his people and not to be a rigid rule maker. And when we can see it that way and we respond accordingly, we understand that this is what makes us distinctive from the rest of the world. St. Augustine wrote a book called The City of God. It's a tough read, but it's really good. And he said that the Christians don't fit well in the world because we have a completely different view of both money and sex. And he said it this way. He said this, People in the world are promiscuous with their beds and stingy with their money. But Christians are stingy with their beds and promiscuous with their money. Meaning, as Christians, we're stingy with the bed. And my sex relationship with my wife is between me and her and none of you. So you're not going to hear any jokes or laugh. That is between us and only us. And my view of money is, where is there a need? Where is there a need? When there's a need, we're going to meet a need sacrificially because when there was a really big need our God sacrificially gave to us you see this is what makes us distinguished separate from others see some Christians love the poor and I, I see this I'm going to be really honest especially among young Christians this social advocacy the social justice these social warriors I see it and there's a lot of good that comes from it there really is but a lot of people want to live that life and neglect holiness and not pay nearly as much attention to the holiness of God and what he's called us to do and how he's called us specifically to live. And they just want to jump onto the next cause. But on the reverse side, you have a lot of people that are so focused with holiness that it becomes selfish and they neglect the needs of other people around them. But this text is telling us that the follower of Jesus cares deeply about both simultaneously. Yes, those causes matter, but so does my holiness becoming more and more like the creator. It's both and. He gets more specific with money here in verse 5. He says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. 
For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Because he said that, we can confidently say this, the Lord is my helper. He really is. And I'm not going to fear, because what can man do to me? See, this is a beautiful passage, but it brings up one specific command here. He says, now, when it comes to money, yes, you're going to be generous. But here's the thing about money. He gives us this direct command. Be content. Much easier said than done, isn't it, Black Friday shoppers, right? (laughs) Much easier. It, It just is. Would you call yourself content? A recent poll said that 80% of Americans would say that they are content. But a Gallup poll done at the exact same time revealed that the number one concern of Americans is that they don't think they have enough money. Like, ah, right? It's both. It's like, yes, I'm content, but I'm not. I'm content. I want that, though. Like, it just goes back and forth. He says, when it comes to the money, you have to understand, are you content? If I asked most of you and I said, are you content? You would probably respond, yeah, I'm pretty content. But then if I said, hey, you're going to get a 15% increase, will your money problems go away? You'd be like, yeah. Yeah, 15% raise, yeah, that, my money problems will go away. You see, we, we kind of live in that tension. But the text tells us, be content. One preacher defined contentment this way. He said this, in Christ, you can be satisfied with exactly what you have because in Christ, you have everything that you need. Let me say that again. In Christ, I can be satisfied. Satisfied. Not a l- little bit, not a lot. I mean, completely and totally satisfied with exactly what I have, because in Christ, I know I have everything that I need. And then he says, if you really want to be content, there's really two things you need to keep in mind. There's these two helps that come from God. It's reminders directly from Scripture. He says, if you want to live a life that's truly content, you have to remember the first thing that the Lord said. He said this, I will never leave you or forsake you. And I think one of the things that stands in the way of our contentment leading into the holiday season Being content is we don't believe that. We don't really believe that he's never going to leave us. We don't really believe that there are not seasons during the year where it's all on me, where all the pressure to provide and and to give everything to have is on me. And so what do we do? We work harder. We save more. We build bigger barns. We try to accomplish more things. We're just going to go, 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 go until the pressure becomes too much and we crash because we're not content because we forgot that he promised us every single step of the way. As you give your life to him, he is with you every single step of the way. Look, a lack of contentment in your life means you've not put the proper weight on Jesus that he's called you to put on him. You're trying to carry a weight that you weren't designed to carry yourself. So he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. But the second promise he makes is this. The Lord is my helper. Because I know he's there with me, I can confidently say that the Lord is my helper. And here's what I want to tell you. After studying Hebrews, it's just this beautiful reminder, week in and week out in this series. Have you guys appreciated Ben leading us kind of through some of the liturgy? I've loved it. It's just been incredible because it's a reminder, week in and week out for me, reminding me that the God who did not let sin or a cross or even death stop him from rescuing me is the same God who said he'll help me every step of the way. And I've needed that reminder every single week in my life. I know that the Lord is my helper. But I think when we summarize the book of Hebrews, the hardest part for us is going to be to slow down and really meditate on what it's taught us. I think one of the hardest commands in all of the Bible, maybe you agree with me, is be still and know that I am God. And I would argue, as I'm raising four kids in this culture, that being still is probably harder now than it ever has been in all of human history. 
be still. That means put the agenda down. That means put the calendar down. That means put the phone down. That means turn the TV off. That means go off by yourself all alone and be still. To think through what we've learned in these last few weeks. Read an interesting study published in Science Magazine recently that said that these researchers gathered all these subjects together and they gave them a choice. You can sit alone with your thoughts for 6 to 15 minutes. That's not a typo. Sit by yourself still 6 to 15 minutes or give yourself an electric shock. I, I don't know how they came up with this, all right? However, one-fourth of the women and two-thirds of the men chose the shock. One guy shocked himself 190 times in 15 minutes. <laughs> Some people would rather punish themselves with electric pain than to sit and be still. They just would. I don't get it. But I do know this, that if we're not willing to slow down, and friends, let me say this to you heading into this hectic season, if you're not willing to slow down, let me say it one more time. If you're not willing to slow down and to be still, I'm scared that you're not going to see God. And I'm even more scared that you're not going to see the fact that you don't need to be God. And so as we finish this series, I want to leave you with this promise. My hope would be in the coming weeks you would meditate on this. You'd think about it, you'd dwell on it, you would pray it. You would let this be kind of the thing that's directing you into this next hectic season. And it comes straight from the end of this book. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because of that, now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.